morning to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. The book of Revelation, chapter 4. This is the very Word of God. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is, and is to come. And when these beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Thus far with reading God's holy and infallible word. This morning, as we look at the new year, There's one thing that, um, as we look at this portion of God's Word, that you and I are going to understand, and I pray understand, and drink in deeply, and that is the the thing that you and I are called to do is to worship the King. I found in, as I have progressed in my spiritual walk, 
Sometimes it seems like I take one step forward and two steps backward, but I have found that as I have been walking, when I first, the first part of my spiritual walk was so concentrated and so overpowered by the fact that he died for me and he forgave me of my sins. And for many years, that, that's what I so focused on. But I'm sure those of you who are saved and washed in the blood of the Lamb, of, of the lamb understand this as well, that as you're progressing, you begin to, uh, in, in your Christian walk, to understand that he's called me and saved me to worship the King He goes from, and he never leaves from being the Lamb of God. But in our Christian experience, we begin to see him as the king. He's my king. And there's nothing that gives me goosebumps, although I have them even right now, as I think of that very fact. He is my king. King, I want a king. You want a king. Everyone born wants a king. Do you know that? When you're born, you want to be a king. And you want to rule and govern yourself. But when Christ comes in your life, something transformative happens. You lay down what you want to become. And you say by faith, Lord, reign in my heart. Be my king. I want no more to worship me but thee. That's what happens. And as we progress in our Christian faith, that's where it brings us. It brings us to the throne of God, the king of kings. We're going to be looking at Revelation 4, 1 through 11. The title is, Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. We have three points. First, the call of chapter 4, verse 1. Second, the central theme of chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. And third, the chorus of chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Dr. Beakey, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, writes these words in regard to it from chapters 4 and forward. He says these words, We've reached a point of no return in our study of the book of Revelation. Many preachers end their series of sermons when they complete chapter 3. This is probably because the first three chapters are comparatively easy to understand and interpret. From chapter 4 on, the book of Revelation can be very challenging, end quote. And indeed, when you and I get to chapter four, chapters 4 and 5, we, we, we understand, aren't we, that we're, we're, we're sailing past the lighthouse. We're getting beyond the, the waters that are before the end of the pier. Waters that are, are going to go from being somewhat shallow to much deeper waters. 
And that can be very intimidating, can't it? Indeed, it can. But if we end our study, at, for example, at chapter 3, and we don't go any further than chapter 3, then we miss out on the immense comfort Christ unveils to his bride, the church, which is found in the rest of the book of Revelation. Chapters 1 through 3 are the first of seven visions that John sees as Christ walks among the seven golden candlesticks. And he has a message for each of those seven churches of Asia Minor. And the, the, the message is this. It's one particular message to each church. Hold fast. Keep faithful until I return. That's the one central message of that first vision. Hold fast. Now, when you and I look at the book of Revelation, we realize that the message of Revelation is not of one, one of conjecture, but one of comfort. And it's not a message that is to the unbelieving world. It is a message to the church, to believers. The book of Revelation is about Christ and his church. When, when John weeps in chapter 5, he's not weeping because, oh, I want to see what's going to happen with the rest of the world. No, when John sees that, weeps because the book with the seven seals is not able to be opened. Nobody seems to be found worthy to open the book except for Jesus Christ. He weeps because it has to do with the church, and he wants to know what's the outcome for the bride of Christ. That's what he wants to know. Now, as we move from chapters 1 through 3, and the first vision, and into chapters 4 through 7 which comprise the second of seven visions, we understand that things are not as they seem to be. More is going on what meets the eye. You and I look around us, and we think that this world is in one mass chaotic situation. Our sight is limited. And we can draw wrong conclusions, and our confidence can spiral downward. And we can begin to wonder if God is in control. But chapters 4 and 5 are a call to the church to see things that are, are, are not as they seem. To see that, rather, the things that we see are not as they really are. Now, there's a couple of things that strike us when we come to chapter 4. First, there was this overwhelming, glorious worship that is taking place in the throne room of heaven. That's what we see. But then there's this placement of of this chapter, following chapters 1 through 3. 
Many of us will look at chapters four, uh, chapter 4 and think it's, it's out of place. There's something about this chapter that doesn't seem right. They don't seem to follow. They seem wholly disconnected. But upon a closer look at these two chapters, they seamlessly connect together. And you say, well, how do they seamlessly connect together? All the problems the struggle and struggles the church experiences and that we're told of in chapters 2 and 3 find their solution, their remedy in chapters 4 and 5. So that the call of the church in chapters 4 and 5 is not work harder, try harder, Pull your bootstraps up, roll up your sleeves, or dig your heels in deeper. The call of the church is to realize that every problem they face is because they have lost sight of the reality of chapters 4 and 5. They've lost lost sight of the call of these two chapters, and that call is, look up. Look up. So if you're a church whose, who, whose love has faded as, as Ephesus 2, uh, as, Ephesus, as the church of Ephesus in chapters 2, 1 through 7, it is to look up. If you're a church suffering on account of your, uh, of your faithfulness, as Smyrna 2, verse 8 through 11, look up. If you're a worldly church similar to Pergamos, chapters 2, 12 through 17, look up. Or an overly tolerant church like Thyatira, look up. Or a complacent church comparable to Sardis, look up. Or a favorite church who has little strength, what is your call? Look up. Look up. Or a lukewarm church as Laodicea. It's to look up. Come up. Look up. Look up and behold your enthroned God. Every failure of the church throughout the ages can be narrowed down to that one failure, the failure to look up. Because when you think about it, if I, look, if I don't look up, where am I looking? I'm looking out, and I'm looking in. I'm looking out there, and I'm looking in here. And when I look out there and when I look in here, I, somehow I think, somehow I got to do, somehow I got to pull my, bullst, uh, my bootstraps up. Somehow I got to roll up my sleeves and get to work and do things and try to change things. But the call is to look up. Because if I look at myself, I am demonstrating what, what uh, Kevin DeYoung says, and that is pride and unbelief. And those two things are the two major problems of the church. Pride and unbelief. Pride in the church is the attitude that thinks too much of herself. Unbelief is thinking too little of God and too much of that which is out there in the world. And so God calls us here to look up to the throne room of God 
And when we look up at the throne room of God, we see how small we are and how great he is. You know, our problem is that we look at ourselves through a microscope and, and we look at ourselves through a microscope and we make ourselves bigger than what we are. That's what we do. But Revelation 4 brings God to view as through a telescope. And as Christians, we have to see God through a telescope. What does a telescope do? It does the opposite of a microscope. A microscope makes small, uh, it takes what's small and makes it big. A telescope brings us to see what we're looking at as it really is. It brings into view what seems small and shows the reality of its immensity. That's what it does. And so when you and I are called to look up so that we magnify God, we're not making God bigger than what he is. God cannot be made bigger than what he is. That's blasphemy. But when we magnify God, we're declaring to the world how great he really is. And when we look up to the throne which is the call of the church, what do we see? We see God. As John describes him here, with the eyes of faith, sitting on the throne. He's the center. And John uses such wonderful imagery here to describe him. There's, there's really no words that can describe the indescribable one. Is there? Are there? You just, you just can't. But he uses what the Holy Spirit enlightens him to use. And he begins to write. And he says, I was in the Spirit. And just like John needed the Spirit in order to see God as he's revealed in his word, so you and I need that same Spirit in our lives to see God as he really is. Otherwise, we will fall into the danger of putting God underneath the microscope. He says, verse 2, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that, that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold." And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, were a, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. 
It's amazing, amazing imagery. That's what John presents before us. And doesn't it, doesn't it strike you that what John sees is not immediately the things that will happen hereafter? Do you notice that? He's, the angel invites him and says to him, Come up, and I will show you the things which must come hereafter. And so John, he looks up, he's invited up, and in his spirit, he doesn't immediately see the things that will happen hereafter. He sees the one in charge of the things hereafter. That's what he sees. And that is extremely important for you and I to understand. Because if we just get a sight of the things that happen hereafter, you and I will wonder, how are all these things which are to come hereafter going to really, truly, and faithfully take place? But if we see and are introduced to the one who is in charge of the things that will happen hereafter, we have that sure guarantee they're going to happen. Undeniably happen. Because of the one who sits on the throne. And he describes him. In all his glory. And in all his majesty. In all his power. He's sitting on the throne in supreme, sovereign control of everything in this whole world. And so when you and I look into this world and we see what's going on in Israel and we see what's going on in Ukraine and, and we see what's going on in our own country, within our own government, and we see the lawlessness that's happening all around us, you and I can easily get wrapped up into thinking everything is absolutely out of control. That's what will happen. But when we see that there's one on the throne, we understand that all these things that we see happening are under his sovereign control and nothing happens outside of that control. He's governing everything. Good things, bad things, all things happening. The good things in your life, the bad things in our lives, all under his control. Nothing outside of his control. And he that was sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardin stone. So wonderful. This is all imagery describing this one. Brilliant. Brilliant imagery. And we could go on in, into this imagery and, dis, and, and define it even more. But for time's sake, I want you to just understand he is using this imagery to describe the indescribable one. And to point us that he is the center of all things. And he further defines that he is the center of all things 
by 24 seats around the throne. So picture in your mind a circle. In the center of this circle is the throne. And God is on the throne. And in chapter 5, we'll later see that Christ is in the midst of the throne. And then around that throne are 24 seats. And many commentators say those represent either the 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. And so they, they, what they represent is a church of all ages from the beginning to the end. And what, what are you and I to see in those 24 elders? If they represent the church, what do you see? By faith, I see you, and you, and you, and you. John sees the church of all ages around the throne. And he sees four beasts full of eyes. And each symbol of these beasts points to some wonderful characteristic. The power of a lion. The wisdom and intelligence of a man. The swiftness of a, of a bird. The usefulness of a, of, of, a, of a cow. Of an ox. That's what he sees. And they, are, and, and they have eyes. And they have wings. And they're around the throne. One on, each, uh, one on this side, one on this side, and one on, the, on either side. And where are they looking? Where is the church looking? Where are these beasts looking? They're looking at the throne. Their focus is on the throne. The throne is the center. God is the center. And that's, you see, what you and I are to be looking at. As we look out into the world, we're to be looking and setting our eyes, the eyes of our faith, upon the one who sits on the throne. He's calling us to look at the one who's central. And he's not calling us just to look at him, but he's calling us to, by faith to make him central in our lives. And so that no matter what God has called you to do, he is central to your life, central to your thought life, central to, to what you do, your actions, central in your words. So when you plant that flower, who are you planting it for? When you're engineering it, engineering something, who are you engineering it for? When you're dropping off milk, who is that for? When you're doing accounting, who is it for? When you're working on a plane, who is it for? When you're studying in school, who is it for? Who's the most central figure in your life that you live for and that you're looking to? 
God, the one on the throne, he's the one. No one else matters. Look to him. Because you know, we, we, we often confine, don't we, the church and her worship to right here, what we're doing now. That's but a small part of worship. Very small part. It's out there where the world can see. That's where it really takes on flesh. In here, there is a tremendous amount of crutches to support you to worship God. Out there, there isn't. But he's given us his Holy Spirit to support us out there and to carry our worship outside these doors and into the byways and highways all around us. Get used to it, brothers and sisters. Worship will be the thing that you, will, you and I will constantly be doing in glory. Start practicing it now, here and everywhere, with an eye to God, on the throne, always ruling, always governing. Worship Him. And John, of course, he sees not only this one, uh, not only these uh, the stones, the beautiful stones, twenty-four seats. Sees a sea, as it were, glass, a sea of glass like unto crystal, all reflecting. Him who sits on the throne. When you go into a mirror and look in the mirror, what are you looking at? You go into it. To, uh, uh, you, you look into the mirror to see whether your hair is okay, whether you're presentable. That's what you look at a mirror for. Is there any dirt on my face, right? And the mirror reflects exactly what is projected into it. This sea of glass doesn't magnify the one who is on the throne. What it's doing, it's mirroring the refl- that him who sits on the throne. It's mirroring his, 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 his perfections and all that he is. When you go into, let's say, uh, a house of mirrors... What do you see every, at every point within that, that house of mirrors? Who do you see? You see a, a reflection of yourself, don't you? Now picture this sea of glass. And who's it mirroring everywhere you look? The one on the throne, central to all things. Those around the throne are pointing to the throne. The sea of glass is reflecting the throne. The beasts, everything, reflecting the throne. There's one that I haven't mentioned, though, and that's the rainbow. 
But I'm tying that in with the chorus of this chapter. The reason why I've done that is because of something that happens or is shown later in the book of Revelation. What does a throne reflect or represent? The faithfulness of God, doesn't it? Where is the first time we see a, 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 a rainbow, rather? We see it in Genesis, don't we? God promises Noah that he will no longer uh, evermore cover the earth with a flood. And he says, here's a symbol that I'm going to put in heaven and to demonstrate my covenant faithfulness to the world. And so whenever you and I see a rainbow in the heaven, in, in, in the sky, what do you and I think of? We think of, don't we, God's faithfulness. And the wonderful thing about what God says to, to Noah in Genesis is that not only, just think of this, not only will you see it and be reminded of my covenant faithfulness, but God says, I see it. I see my covenant faithfulness. His eyes are always upon his covenant faithfulness, cherishing his covenant faithfulness, glorying in his covenant faithfulness. There's 24 elders representing the whole church. And this is why I bring in this rainbow in the chorus. How is it that they sit on chairs around the throne with crowns on their head? I ask you, how is it that they sit there? Why isn't it that they are not like those who are crying for the mountains to cover them? For the rocks to hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne? Their eyes are fixed on the throne, the one before whom the whole earth trembles and will flee away. Because of the, th- because of the rainbow, the darling attribute of God, his covenant faithfulness, that's why. You and I will sit around that throne. You, you, you must see. I want you to see. You're around the throne. You see it. Are you embracing it? You don't deserve to be there. But you're there. All on account of the covenant faithfulness of God, who's not only called you, washed you in the blood of his son, redeemed you from his sins, given you his Holy Spirit, justified, sanctified. He's not only done that, but he's redeemed you, and you're sitting here. He's given you white robes which represent the righteousness of the saints which John will see in a later chapter, and he sees here as well. You're there because of the blood of the Lamb. You have a crown because of the blood of the Lamb. 
Everything that you have there is because of him who sits on the throne and him who is in the midst of the throne. That's why when you and I see ourselves by faith around that throne, we're not crying out to the rocks to cover us from him who sits on the throne. Beloved, you and I have a Savior who has fully borne our sins away, clothed us in his righteousness, and has taken away our reproaches and shame. Let us, as Revelation 19, verse 7 and 8 say, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So as you and I look into this world and see all the chaos that's going around us, he's calling us to look up to where we really are. Are. We're really and truly there. How do I know that? Because Christ is there. The second Adam is there. The one who represents you and me is there. When he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. When he ascended, I ascended. When he sits there, I'm there. And John says it here. He's there, and we're there. There's no doubt about it. Don't let the things around that happen around you ever take your eyes off the one who sits enthroned. Don't do it. He secured your and my placement there through his covenant faithfulness and through the blood of the, through the blood of the Lamb. The call on the threshold of this new year is look up and behold the one who sits on the throne and to understand that you're there and he's governing everything in this world according to his most sovereign will to secure your placement there. Worship him. Worship him. Who has held the ocean in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Who can counsel him who knows all things? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous works? Who has felt the nails upon his hands? Taking all the guilt of sinful man. God eternal 
humbled to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. Behold, our God, seated on the throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold, our King. Nothing can compare. Come, come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us in this whole year to adore you. So beautiful, so wonderful, so beyond our imagination. And yet we get a wonderful glimpse into the throne room of you. And we get to see you with the eyes of faith. And so, Lord, help us with these glimpses, as wonderful as they are, to worship you. And not to keep that worship to ourselves, but grant us, O Lord, an extremely infectious worship that others may join us as we heard last night in in Moses' call to Hobab to come along with them, that others too may join us in our worship of you. Keep us, keep you, Lord, keep, keep yourself central in our lives. Please do that. Because we have this propensity to keep other things central in our lives. And so we ask your Holy Spirit to keep in our hearts you central. Nothing else. We pray as well, Lord, that you would be with us in this new year. With all the families here and beyond. Protecting every one of them. Watching over them. We ask that every family here, every member of that family, and the members that will be added to their families would be reserved to praise and worship you until the coming of your son upon the clouds of heaven that not one would be left behind but that all would come along with us on that journey a journey to the throne room of God to worship you in Jesus name we pray amen